Welcome to Calvary Albuquerque. We pursue the God who is passionately pursuing a lost world. We do this with one another. Through worship, by the word, to the world. But what I thought I'd talk about tonight is something that I think is really important for us to understand in the day in which we live because the Bible is under attack. Is it not? From every angle, from every direction, the Bible comes under attack. And people who believe the Bible are under attack. Archaeology is the single best means of confirming the physical, historical reality of the Bible. Now, that should be the case, shouldn't it? If the, bibli- if the biblical text rises from three-dimensional space-time reality, then we should be able to go to that same territory, that same real estate, and find evidence for the world it describes. Should we not? Yes, we should. And we do. And there's ample evidence. There's abundant evidence. It's growing and growing and growing. But people need to find out about it. So I thought I would do a thing tonight touching on pretty much go through the entire Old Testament with various archaeological discoveries, some in the past, some very recent, who have, uh, uh, that have uh, given evidence of the historical credibility of the Bible. Before I do that, I have another little tiny announcement. This is very exciting. For those of you who've been following the, the Sodom excavation project for Let's see, it's been going on now for 12 years. This winter we'll be going into our 13th excavation season. I'm very excited about that because we're excavating in the palace, the palace of King Bera of the Sodom story. And we just got our first radiocarbon dates back from the destruction layer of Sodom. And I won't go into detail. I will just say it absolutely confirms what we knew all along from the ceramics uh, by that method of dating. And it confirms it. And we are very, very excited. Um, only an archaeologist would sit at his computer, see the, re- see the technical report from beta analytic laboratories and shed tears of joy. <laughs> so I love it. We're very excited about this, and uh, we have lots more carbon-14 dates coming, and um, it's been a long time coming. Now, here's another announcement. There's just tons of stuff. We haven't announced it because this is one of those things that we just can't... You can't say anything about it. You can't even say, we hope it's going to happen, because if it doesn't happen, then you're disappointed, and you have to explain it to everybody. So we just kind of have kept mum about it. For the last two or three years, um, I've been working with with uh, Veritas Evangelical Seminary in Santa Ana, California. It's out there by the Coast, uh, Calvary Costa Mesa campus. And um, I've been teaching archaeology for them for a long time, as well as directing the program here at TSU. And we decided about three years ago that we wanted to go for a fully accredited Master of Arts Ph.D. program in archaeology and biblical history. And to make a long story short, 
We did all the accreditation stuff the last three years on it. This summer, we had the final accreditation meetings with the outside expert and all that, all that kind of stuff, examination. And we are now approved by the accreditors. We have the only freestanding, this, this is amazing to me, with Veritas Evangelical Universities, um, uh, seminaries, I'm going to talk about the name change in a second. With Veritas, we now have the world's only freestanding archaeology program, MAPHD program, in an evangelical institution. Period. On the planet. We're it. Now, there is a, there's another Ph.D. program in archaeology, a terrific one at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, my, one of my alma maters. And, uh, but it's under the School of Theology. It's a major under the School of Theology. We, we, we approached ours as a freestanding archaeology program. And uh, so we are, like, stoked. We are so excited to have that program. By the way, Veritas uh, is changing its overarching name to Veritas International University. And I'm excited about that. Because from an apologetics point of view, when you go into places like um, you know, the secular American schools of oriental research and the professional societies and you're wearing a badge that says seminary on it, sometimes that's a little... You have to kind of explain yourself. And you're looked down upon because, oh, you know, you're a Christian... You're somehow an evangelical, or you're kind of spiritually minded, which means you can't do good archaeology. But with, uh, with the international university on there, it'll be a little bit easier. And, um, and I have that experience with Trinity Southwest University as well. Uh, that's why we changed the name years ago to that. It just plays better. And um, we do everything we can, take everything off the table that doesn't need to be there so we can deal with the facts. All right, so... That's a whole bunch of stuff, just exciting stuff. Uh, if you're thinking about going to uh, get a seminary degree, a master's, we even have a BA program now, accredited BA, MA, DMIN, PhD, MD, whatever you want, we have it available right here in Albuquerque. We are the only accredited evangelical seminary in an arc between Phoenix, Denver, and Dallas. Just think of that whole space right here in Albuquerque, so you don't have to leave. You can hang out here, get all the degrees you need for the ministry that you want to pursue. All right. Is the Old Testament historically reliable? I could say yes and sit down. (laughs) And then we could sing the rest of the the time. Um, That wouldn't be much fun, though, would it? All right. A couple of quotations going in on the front end here. Israel Finkelstein. I know Israel well. We run into each other. We see each other all the time. He comes to my papers. I go to his papers at at Asor and so on. Israeli, probably one of the top two or three Israeli archaeologists. Here's what he said. Combination of archaeological and historical research demonstrates that The biblical account of the conquest and occupation of Canaan by the Israelites is entirely divorced from historical reality. And by the way, that's pretty much the sentiment of the majority of archaeologists. Niels Peter Lemke, look at this. 
The patriarchal narratives are fiction, not reality. The patri- uh, that world does not represent a real world. It stands outside the usual represent- representation of time and space. As a matter of fact, neither the narratives nor their world can be dated to any precise period. In other words, it's just pure fiction. That's the kind of stuff we have to live with every day in the, in the world of archaeology, in the discipline of archaeology, because most of the archaeologists take this position. They either don't care, period, about the Bible, and they don't think about it, or if they do, it's in this kind of vein. Now, we, I'm going to let Kenneth Kitchen do some talking here because Professor Kitchen, Kitchen from the University of Liverpool is one of the top ancient Near Eastern scholars in the world today. And let's let him, I'm going to let him kind of open it and I'm going to let him close it at the end. But um, let's just read a quote here. I love this. By the way, uh, his great book, this comes out of one of his books, but um, his great book on the reliability of the Old Testament. Just get that. And if you ever can't sleep, that's a go-to, a go-to must for you. Here's what he says. Increasingly extreme views about the Old Testament writings have been trumpeted loudly and proclaimed ever more widely and stridently. In the service of these views, all manner of gross misinterpretations of original first-hand documentary data from the ancient Near East itself are now being shot forth in turn to prop up these extreme stances on the Old Testament, regardless of the real facts of the case. And so we must firmly say to philosophical cranks, the politically correct, postmodernist, or whatever else, your fantasy agendas are irrelevant in and to the real world, both of today and of all preceding time back to the remotest antiquity. Get real, or alas, get lost. I love it. Um, We wish they would get lost, but uh, they don't, so we keep having to deal with them. Um... I want to open a little thing here called that I like to call the Bronze Age Bible. Now, why do I call it the Bronze Age Bible? Because the Bible, the Old Testament, is divided into two very distinct sections, one belonging to the Bronze Age and the later section belonging to the Iron Age. Now, of course, the Bronze Age, we're talking about the third millennium, the second millennium B.C., and the Iron Age, the second millennium to the first millennium B.C. The Bronze Age Bible consists of Genesis through about the first half of the book of Judges. So Genesis into Judges. The Iron Age part of the Bible goes from midpoint in the book of Judges down to the end of the Bible. The Old Testament. So basically from Judges to Malachi. Iron Age. Everything before that, Bronze Age. These are two very distinct periods. Very different culturally. The world internationally and locally is completely different in these two periods of time. And so you would expect that each of those segments of the Bible would be authentic to those particular archaeological time frames. So, I will introduce to you now some bits and pieces from what I call the Bronze Age Bible. First five books, plus Joshua, plus about half of the book of Judges. 
What I'm going to introduce to you here, here are things from the text that can be absolutely authenticated archaeologically, geographically, historically, that demonstrate the pristine accuracy of the biblical text to the time frames in which it is allegedly written. In this case, we're going to deal with the Bronze Age. Isn't it interesting that Genesis chapter 10 correctly identifies the Fertile Crescent that is that geographical arc formed by Mesopotamia. I'm going to try to go your way. If I go this way, that's backwards to you. From Mesopotamia all the way over to the Levant. Okay. The Bible identifies that as the cradle of civilization. And if we look at it, we can see that here's the, here's the ancient Near East and there's that fertile crescent. The Bible identifies that as the place where civilization first emerges, where urbanization, where cities first uh, come to bear in humanity. And so there it is. The Bible nails it. It's interesting that a book, if, if like the critics uh, want to say, it's written by late Iron Age Judahite priests sometime around the 5th, six centuries BC, if it's written really late, if it's a piece of concocted fiction, then how in the world did they somehow broaden their scope of origins to include everything that modern anthropology and archaeology knows to be the case? How'd they guess that? Most native people, by the way, see the creation of the world all the great events, everything leading up to their time, is happening in their locale. It's like the Native Americans, right? Everything happens right below our feet. We come out of the ground. Um, but this is not what happens in the Bible. It shows the grand international entire spectrum of what we know to be true historically as to the rise of civilization. Moving right along. Abraham's covenants with Yahweh... Genesis 15 and 17, with Abimelech in Genesis 21, matched the unique structure of Middle Bronze Age treaties and contracts, not those of earlier or later periods. It's interesting that the structure and details and outlines of covenants, contracts, and treaties change through time in the ancient world. The ones in the early Bronze Age are different from the Middle Bronze Age, which are very different from the Late Bronze Age and totally different from the Iron Age. And guess what? When you analyze Yahweh's covenant with Abram and Abram's covenant with Abimelech, they match no other period of time other than the Middle Bronze Age, the authentic time for Abraham according to the Bible. I think that's fabulous. Um, Here's another one. Oh, I saw them had to come up, didn't it? Um, I just want to read this. By the way, um, all of this stuff tonight is coming out of a chapter that I wrote for the new uh, Harvest Handbook of Christian Apologetics, uh, the chapter that they asked me to write on uh, this title tonight, Is the Old Testament Historically Reliable? And so um, if you want to get a copy of that book when it comes out in the next few months, um, all of this uh, is in that chapter. 
Well, the cities of the Kikar, Sodom itself, we now know, in spite of the fact that so many scholars through the centuries, or through the last two centuries, have said it didn't exist at all, we now know that it was located at Tal Hamam in Jordan. We know that it was the largest continuously occupied city in the southern Levant during the Bronze Age. It had a lot of cities and towns around it. It's over a hundred acres in occupational footprint. It has massive defenses and ramparts and gates and palaces and administrative buildings. It has a 2000 year history as a city state which matches up with Genesis chapter 10. And it met a horrible destruction toward the end of the Middle Bronze Age in the time of Abraham. And the Bible says, burning stones and fire from Yahweh out of the heavens destroyed the city. It's exactly what we found. It was destroyed by a cosmic airburst that wiped out an entire civilization, 400 square kilometers, north and east of the Dead Sea, in a flash. All that's being confirmed by the archaeological record. So this well-watered landscape was thus destroyed, and it lay barren and without any agriculture or settlements for the next 700 years. It was a complete and utter annihilation. Uh, Well, just a quick look at some of the excavation at Sodom, just a peek on, on the Acropolis. Um, I love this. Lane Rittmeyer's uh, recent uh, cutaway um, reconstruction drawing of what we now call the Grand Gateway of Sodom. And also our model based on uh, our excavations of 12 years on the city of Sodom, what it looked like with its upper city and its lower city. So there it is. Uh, Not only do we excavate it, but we can also extrapolate what the city looked like. Now, the Mosaic Law. Remember we talked about Abraham's covenants. Abraham's covenants match the Middle Bronze Age. That's the time frame in which he lives. It's interesting that the Mosaic Law Code conforms to a very distinct configuration of Hittite treaties from the late Bronze Age and no other time frame. Joshua and Moses belong to the late Bronze Age. Moses' law code matches only literature, covenants and treaties from that period and none other. It's, it's an amazing thing. By the way, why Hittite? How does Moses get hooked up with the Hittites? Come to my archaeology seminar on Tuesday night, 6.30 to 9.30, which meet every Tuesday night throughout the year, and um, you can discover how Moses got hooked up with the Hittites. The Bible doesn't tell us, but the historical record does. All right, so the Mosaic Law is authentic only to the late Bronze Age. It cannot have been written any time later It is authentic to that one period and that one period alone. The price of Joseph's slavery. I like this one. Joseph was sold into slavery for 20 shekels, according to Genesis 37. Now, a 
According to the Bible timeline, the Bible chronology, Joseph lives also in the Middle Bronze Age. If you take all of the contract and treaty documents from all the cultures of the Near East in that period of time, and you analyze the price of slaves in all of those trade documents, you know what the average going price of a slave is in the Middle Bronze Age? You guessed it. It's 20 shekels. It's exactly as it should be. Nobody living a thousand years later in the, in the Iron Age would be able to guess such a thing because you know what the going price of a slave was in, in the Iron Age? Upwards of 120 to 160 shekels. There was inflation. <laughs> Lots of it. The Exodus events. Egypt's greatest dynasty in their history was the 18th dynasty. Now, the 18th dynasty is spectacular. I wish we could talk about it, but just a little brief uh, couple of sentences here about it. It collapsed as a result of the Exodus events. The greatest dynasty in the history of Egypt came crashing down as a result, of all, a result of all those terrible things that the Bible describes that occurred to Egypt in the time of the Exodus. The plundering of Egyptian wealth, the loss of a large labor force, the decimation of Egypt's northern military forces, and the loss of Pharaoh himself. None other than Tutmosis IV. By the way, we just got some confirmation um, from the Jericho excavators about some very key things that absolutely support now um, that Tutmosis IV is in fact the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Don't have time to get into that, but we now know him, and we know him well. This is the only dynastic collapse in Egypt during the entire late Bronze Age. I don't care whether you take an early date for the Exodus or a late date for the Exodus. In all of that time frame, there's only one collapse of Egypt. Egypt is flying high the rest of the time. There's only one time of disastrous collapse, and that's after the death of Tutmosis IV. So, this is exactly, this dynastic collapse is exactly what one would predict if the events of the Exodus actually occurred. What's interesting about this is it's precisely, exactly, happening, collapsing, when the Bible says the Exodus occurred. It's amazing, isn't it? Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Love this guy. He's a little beef jerky-ish. But he looks pretty good for a mummy. Um... This is Tutmosis the fourth. Wow. How many, how many pharaohs, how many kings in any, in the history of the world can you look into their face? How many Bible characters can you look into their actual face? That's the mug to which Moses expressed, let my people go. Those pierced ears heard Moses' voice. There he is. 
Is he cool or what? I love this guy. Um, there's one of his monuments. You see, there's some artistic liberty. And I love his name. We have, by the way, you can go to the Museum of Archaeology here at TSU here, and you can see a scarab or a seal, natural seal from, from his time with his name on it. And the seal name here says, Men, the, see the bug? Men. That's, that's how you pronounce it. Men. I'm sorry, the comb is men. The comb, which I don't need. See the little comb? Men, then the bug. Kefir. Then the three little lines. Ooh. And then the sun symbol at the top. You always go to the top. Ra. His name is Men Kefir Ooh Ra. That's his throne name. They had five names, actually, each pharaoh. This is his throne name. Men Kefir Ooh Ra. Tutmos the fourth. Pharaoh the Exodus. And it is exactly... Right. We're going to see some more. Look at this. The Exodus itinerary. That is, all of the places, the named locations through which the Israelites passed as they took this rather crazy circuitous route out of Egypt and all around and eventually wound up at Sinai. That Exodus itinerary in Numbers 23, um, Numbers 33, tracks along known trade routes that are well attested from Egyptian map lists of the late Bronze Age. We have lists from... Ramesses the Great, and going back to Amenhotep II. We have even some lists going back to uh, the II, I believe. So several map lists on monuments. And what they do is they track routes going out from Egypt in various directions. And the Canaan route actually lists every location mentioned in Numbers 23 in the exact same order, going all the way up to Nebo. It's really incredible. Um, so, the Exodus story geographically is confirmed by the Egyptians themselves. It's really amazing. Slave costs. Now, we looked at slave costs in Joseph's time, which was what? 20 shekels in the Middle Bronze Age, a few hundred years before Moses. Let's get down to the time of Moses. According to Exodus 21, in the Mosaic Law, the cost to replace a slave was 30 shekels. Guess what? The average going price of a slave during the late Bronze Age was 30 shekels. What's interesting about this is the Bible writer even records the subtle inflationary curve of slave prices from the Middle Bronze Age to the Late Bronze Age. It's amazing. Now, nobody can guess this kind of stuff. You can't go centuries and centuries later and have Israelites concocting stories like this and getting it all right, getting these details right. It's not possible. And there it is, uh, one of many proofs of the accuracy of the biblical text. I love this one. A lot of people haven't thought about this. I've never seen anybody write about it. You can read about it in the museum. Israelite literacy. Do you know there was no public literacy before Moses? 
Isn't that interesting? Why, why was the lack of public literacy a, a help to the great empires and to the kingdoms of the ancient world? Why was it preferred to keep the masses illiterate? Because information is power. And power in their minds needed to reside solely in the hands of their monarchs and of their royals. That's it. You keep the people ignorant. God wanted the Israelites to have the power in their own hands. And the power was the Word of God. Especially the law. How do we know that God demanded, God commanded literacy of the Israelites? Let me just read this little paragraph. Yahweh required literacy of Israel. It's Deuteronomy 27. I'll quote it in a second. In preparation for which the Semitic alphabet was invented in Egypt during the centuries when the Israelites sojourned there. Remember from the time of Joseph and and Jacob. Okay, From that time, the, the alphabet was invented. And that same alphabet chronologically followed the Israelites into the Sinai wilderness and into Canaan, tracing their biblical presence to all these locations. Now, so well, I thought writing was invented way back there around 3,300 3, B.C. Hieroglyphics, Mesopotamian cuneiform, all of those. Those are not alphabets. Those are writing systems and they're very complex with hundreds of characters. Very difficult to learn. In fact, nobody can learn it except for a scribe who from the time of being a young child learns for many, many years how to, how to do that language, how to write those systems. An alphabet is a simplification. Somewhere between 20 and 30 letters reflecting the range of human vocalization so that you can write any language with an alphabet, a fixed small number of characters in a fixed order so that an adult of average intelligence can learn to read and even write in a very short manner, in a weekend, in a week, in two weeks, you can do it. Now, why would such an alphabet be invented? By the way, how many times has an alphabet been invented in the history of the world? One. Okay, the Cherokee alphabet, but that's artificial. <laughs> One. One time in the history of the world, the alphabet comes forth, and every other alphabet we know of, from Arabic to Hebrew to Russian to Greek, all is a derivative of that same initial alphabet, Semitic alphabet. All comes from the same root, that, that alphabet. That alphabet is invented when the Israelites were in Egypt, follows the Israelites around into Sinai, into the Sinai wilderness and up into Canaan, wherever they go, according to the proper dates that the Bible describes. That's exactly it. Now why? Now let's go back to Deuteronomy 27. Yahweh said to Joshua and Moses, He said, when the Israelites get ready to cross... When you get ready to cross the Jordan, 
on the opposite bank, on the west bank, in the promised land, I want you to set up three large standing stones. And I want you to plaster them over with plaster. And I want you to write upon them all the words of the law. That's a command of literacy. He says, as the Israelites go in, each Israelite will read the words of the law. It's a big billboard. All the words of the law. By the way, now you know why Hebrew goes from right to left. Because it must have been on their right side as they come in on the shore, right? Oh, we're going this way, so we've got to read it right to left as we move into the, to the promised land. And uh, by the way, ancient languages could be read left to right, right to left, up, down, sideways, and diagonally. They just somehow settled on right to left. So, um, God wanted the Israelites to be able to read. Why? Because they, he wanted the Israelites to read the law, memorize the law, know the law, and hold their leaders accountable to the law. First, a first in history. And, the first, and, that, and that alphabet is the key to accomplishing that. It's amazing to me. All right. Canaanite religious practices. You go to the law, to the Mosaic law, and all through the Mosaic law there are prohibitions left and right dealing directly with the religions of Canaan. The practices of these religions, child sacrifice, ritual prostitution, all kinds of stuff that you really can't talk about in children's Sunday school. (laughs) But it's all laid out in the Mosaic law. Is very clear. Now, Bronze Age religious practices are detailed in Genesis through Joshua. We see it. Not only do the Mosaic narratives accurately depict the gods, goddesses, cult practices of Canaan, but also the books of Joshua and Judges reveal how the Israelites rebelled against Yahweh to embrace these very pagan beliefs. All of this is confirmed dramatically in the archaeological record. Everything the Bible talks about, every god, every pagan god, every goddess, every practice, everything about that, the Canaanite cults, is confirmed in the archaeological record. We see it, and unfortunately, and sadly, as the biblical record describes, we see it in the Israelite communities. All right. So it's exactly what the Bible describes. Joshua's conquest. Joshua conquered an Egyptianless Canaan. Remember, all the way from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Joshua, God promised, here's what, here's what God said to, to all of them. I am going to bring you into a land, a promised land, in which there are Canaanites, Amorites, and Hittites. Those are the three biggies. And then you got, you know, Hivites, Jebusites, Perizzites, Termites, all, the, all, that, all those other folks. Um, but never Egyptians. Never are Egyptians mentioned as being part of Canaan. 
Now, this is interesting because... Let me just finish reading this. Because precisely at the right historical moment, in the midst of the 18th dynasty collapse and withdrawal from Canaan as a result of the Exodus events, we have an Egyptianless Canaan. The first half of the late Bronze Age from around 1550 to about 1400 B.C., is known as the Egyptian domination of the Levant. It's known as the time... Books are written about it. The time of the Egyptian domination of the Levant. It wasn't just Egyptian domination. The Egyptian border had been moved from the Pelusiac branch of the Nile north to the Euphrates River. Egypt, it became Egypt. It was controlled by an iron fist for much of this period by Egypt. It was the collapse of the 18th dynasty at the time of the Exodus that caused the Egyptians to withdraw entirely from Syria and Canaan. So that by the time Joshua came into the land, there were no Egyptians. None of the promises of Yahweh give this land, uh, that give this land, uh, to give this land to Israel ever mention Egyptians in Canaan, and neither are Egyptian troops mentioned in Joshua's campaigns. If Joshua had entered into Canaan three or four years before he did, he would have had to fight Egyptians. Not local Canaanites, he'd had to fight the Egyptians. But they are now gone. It is no coincidence that in the decades following the death of Pharaoh Tutmosis IV, the Pharaoh of the Exodus, during whose short reign the terrible events had occurred, Egypt withdrew from its Asiatic territories, leaving Joshua to take the promised land with no threat of Egyptian interference, interference or retaliation. I think it's stunning to realize that when Joshua came into Canaan, he took Canaan... At its low ebb, by the way, the Egyptians had kept Canaan depopulated on purpose. Slave raids. Just go through and murder a bunch of people just to keep those Asiatic numbers down. Keep them under control. And in the process, Canaan, the Egyptians weakened Canaan. So that when Joshua, when the, when the Egyptians leave... Joshua shows up on the doorstep of the promised land, crosses the river, and is able to conquer a land that has been depleted by the Egyptians. But the Egyptians are long gone. God promised them an Egyptianless Canaan, and they got an Egyptianless Canaan. That's a stunning historical fact. It's also an amazing fulfillment of biblical prophecy. The Battle of Jericho. Joshua takes Jericho in the mid-14th century, 40 years after the death of the Exodus Pharaoh, to Moses IV. It's an archaeological fact. There was no late Bronze Age settlement at Jericho in the first part of the late Bronze Age. There was nothing before the 14th century B.C. at Jericho, and there was nothing after the 14th century B.C. at Jericho, all the way down to, to about 1,000 B.C. 
Jericho has no occupation except for a short period of time. In fact, about a 50-year occupation from sometime around 1400 to sometime in the middle of the 14th century. That's it. In other words, there's only one possible fortified Jericho that could have been the city of Rahab. Rahab, as we say in Oklahoma. Rahab. Rahab. That's historical precision. That's amazing. The Bible says exactly when Joshua comes to town, it just so happens that that's the only, that's the only Jericho available to destroy in the whole late Bronze Age. Just that little period of time. Voila. The people of Israel, the people of Israel, Merneptah to Stila, around 1210 to 1205, somewhere in there. This is, this is Ramesses the Great. Very old, 80-year-old son who finally came to the throne after Ramses the Great ruled for 64 years. One of his youngest sons, Merneptah, in his 80s, he comes to the throne. He he puts up this stela. And um, what he wants to confirm is that he conquers everybody around. It's just, you know, it's it's just a brag. It's not really true. But he confirms that Israel was well enough established in Canaan to be recognized by Pharaoh Merneptah as one of the perennial enemies or nine bows of Egypt. On this stela, Israel is designated by a very particular hieroglyphic symbol as a people, not a nation with a king, a people group, which is spot on. It is exactly correct. Now, here's the Merneptah stela. And on this, by the way, it's a brag, it's not true. By the way, this is 1210. This is just... Not too far after the time of the Exodus. Israel, by this time... By the way, if Yul Brynner is the pharaoh of the Exodus... If you catch my drift. If Ramesses the Great is pharaoh of the Exodus, and the Israelite... Which would make the Israelite Exodus sometime around 1250 or so, 1210. I mean, you know, somewhere in the 1200s. How can his sons, Stila confirm Israel as one of the nine perennial enemies of Egypt already, if it just barely happened. Well, you have to move that exodus backward. You have to give the Israelites time to forge out um, their, their territory and to flesh it out and to control it and to be recognized as a perennial enemy of Egypt. Here's what it says on the... It says, Israel, and then again, this is a brag, Israel, his seed is no more. That's what Merneptah says about Israel. This is the first mention of Israel in an ancient document outside the Bible. I titled this one, Smite, Smote, Smitten. (laughs) Do you love verbs? English ones, they're just weird the way they do that. Um, The phrase in the Bible, to smite with the edge of the sword, is an idiom derived from the single-edge curved battle axes of the Middle and Late Bronze Age, the final form of, of which was a very elegant weapon called a sickle sword because it's shaped like a sickle with the cutting edge on its outer curve. These were hacking or smiting swords with no thrusting point. They just have a curved edge like a scimitar and a single edge, and you don't stab somebody with it. You hack them with it. Thus, to smite with the edge, singular, 
to smite with the edge of the sword was an apt description of this class of weaponry. By the end of Iron Age 1, around 1000 BC, that'd be about the beginning of King David's reign, the sickle sword was completely extinct. I say all but extinct, but it's pretty much done for. It's, it's gone from history. It was replaced, of course, by the straight, pointed, double-edged sword, the typical sword that we think of uh, from antiquity. Now, it's no coincidence that this idiom of smiting with the edge, singular, of the sword is connected only with passages of Scripture that belong to the Bronze Age part of the Bible, not those that belong to the Iron Age part of the Bible. It appears 24 times in the Bronze Age Scriptures, but trails off shortly after the book of Judges. It's not found again, hardly at all. It's interesting. The idiom dies out in common use after its namesake, sickle sword, disappeared from history. Is that a coincidence? No. Here's a sickle sword. You can see this one in the museum. You can hold it in your hand and just don't cut yourself. To smite with the edge of the sword. The sickle sword. Here's one you might not guess at. The Philistines and our buddy Homer. Iliad, Odyssey, call those. Homer's Iliad confirms the authenticity of an Aegean-style ritual sequence enacted by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 5 and 6. Wow, that's weird. I mean, I don't have time to go into it, but there's a ritual sequence with about six points of ritual that's described in 1 Samuel 5 and 6. By the way, it has to do with the Remember when the Philistines uh, stole the Ark of the Covenant from Israel? That's this. And, and every place the Ark of the Covenant went and all the cities of the Philistines, God struck them. God has a great sense of humor. He struck them with, I love the good old King James rendering of that, hemorrhoids. <laughs> so every place the Ark went, the Israelites were not sit, uh, the Philistines were not sitting comfortably. So they pushed it off to another location and, and it did this little tour around Philistia until they got to the city of Ekron and, and they had had enough. They said, send this cotton-picking thing back to the Israelites. But how do we... We stole this from their God. How do you return such an object? Well, we know from the book of Homer that the Mycenaean Greeks had a very specific... Ritual sequence for returning a stolen object to a god or a king. And it's mirrored precisely even to the sacrifice of the, of the bulls, to the placing of the golden mice and tumors on the ox carts, all this kind of stuff. It's all there. Guess what? The Philistines, we know for a fact, are the descendants of the Mycenaean Greeks. It's amazing. How do, you, how do you think you could connect the Bible with Homer? It's amazing. All right. Quickly now in our last couple of minutes here. The Iron Age Bible. 
David and Solomon. If you take David and Solomon's little mini empire that they carved out between Mesopotamia and Egypt, if you look at that, we could predict its, its existence if the Bible didn't even exist. If you take the Bible away, we would still predict a kingdom would exist in that territory exactly where Solomon's and uh, David's and Solomon's kingdom is located. How do we know that? Because we know where all the kingdoms are around it. We know their territories historically. And there's a big gap right in the middle. So scholars who say, well, the size of King David's and, and Solomon's uh, uh, territory is just, it's nonsensical. It's not historical. Yes, it is. We would even predict that such a kingdom would exist even if the Old Testament were not in our possession. The Davidic dynasty was long poo-pooed by various scholars as, as completely mythical, completely uh, legend. David's name was never found, had never been found outside the text of the Bible. Until back in the 1990s, guess what? A little text came, a fragment of an Aramean text called the Tel Dan Stealer or the Tel Dan inscription mentions the house, that is to say the dynasty of David, and an Egyptian inscription refers to the heights, of, that's one in Egypt, mentions the heights of David, that is the central highland location of Hebron and Jerusalem, two of David's capital cities, confirming that King David was a historical figure. The Egyptians talk about the heights of David, and the Aramean inscription, which also mentions several other biblical characters, talks about the dynasty of David. Even the Mesha stela, which is a 19th century um, stela, which I'm not going to get into tonight, it mentions the Israelite king Omri, but in that same stela, it also likely refers to the house of David. It has not just the Beit David, but the Beit Da. Beit, house of Da. We just have the first letter. Nothing else it could be. It's probably House of David as well. So now we have at least two and probably three references to King David as a historical figure. Here is the Tel Dan Stila. We have a replica of this uh, in the museum. And you can see here, and you can read it, Beit David. Okay, there it is. House of David. Solomon's wealth. After King Solomon died... Shashank I, or biblical Shishak, came racing in during the time of his son Rehoboam. He plundered Jerusalem's palace and temple. And according to Egyptian records, Shashank died just one year after plundering Jerusalem. His son, Ozorkon I, after barely three years of being on the throne made some very spectacular gifts to the Egyptian gods, including one offering that equaled 383 tons of silver and gold. That's a lot. At this rather depressed time in Egyptian history, where did all of this vast wealth come from? This is not a high part of Egyptian history. This is the low, very bad, terrible time in Egyptian history called the late period. 
So at this depressed time in Egyptian economy, where does Ozorkon get this massive wealth? It is very likely from Solomon's treasures that his father brought back to Egypt. Is this a coincidence? No, I don't think so. I think it matches up with the historical record quite nicely. Hezekiah and Sennacherib. The prism of Sennacherib records an Assyrian invasion of 46 fortified Judean cities, including Jerusalem under Hezekiah, also recorded in 2 Kings 18 and 19 and Isaiah 36 and 37. In this account, that is on the Sennacherib prism, in this account of his third campaign, Sennacherib describes his victories over several Levantine kingdoms, after which he encountered the Egyptian army. The Egyptian commander is not named in Sennacherib's annals. But it is named, he is named in the Old Testament as Teharka in 2 Kings 19 and Isaiah 37, who was a Nubian ruler who later became Pharaoh Teharka of Egypt. Look at that intertwining of the historical record, the Egyptian record, the biblical record, the Egyptian record giving us insight into the biblical record, the biblical record giving us insight into Sennacherib's identification of the Egyptian uh, the Egyptian uh, general that he encountered. It's really amazing. Here's Sennacherib's prism. Here's what he says about Hezekiah on the prism. He says, by the way, there's at least three of these in different museums. They made copies of them in antiquity. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. By the way, the Sennacherib's prism does not say that Sennacherib conquered Jerusalem or that he destroyed it. It says he laid siege to it. What does the Bible say? Overnight, the angel of Yahweh destroyed, killed all of his troops. Oops. Through that prism, he says, I went to Judea, I conquered this city and that city. I conquered it, I destroyed it over and over and over. He gets to Jerusalem, he says, I laid siege. Never says he destroyed it. Never says he conquered it. Why? The Bible gives us the reason the angel of Yahweh destroyed the army of Sennacherib. <laughs> pretty, pretty amazing. Last one. Daniel and Belshazzar. The Nabonidus cylinder sets the record straight on the accuracy of Daniel by confirming that his son Belshazzar was in fact the last ruling monarch in Babylon the night it fell to the Medes and the Persians. That's confirmed in the, in the record, but it was never known before the discovery of of this set of, of cylinders mentioning Nabonidus, his son, and his rule over Babylon, his son Belshazzar. Belshazzar, the name Belshazzar in the book of Daniel was laughed at as being non-historical because that name had never been seen in any other historical source. Except the Bible. And it was finally confirmed by archaeology that Belshazzar was, in fact, the last ruling monarch in the city of Babylon when it fell to the Medes and the Persians. Now, uh, here, are the, here are the cylinders of Nabonidus, and there are bunches of those. I'm going to let Kenneth Kitchen close us out here. This little quote. 
The theories current in Old Testament studies, however brilliantly conceived and elaborated, were mainly established in a vacuum with little or no reference to the ancient Near East, and initially too often in accordance with the a priori philosophical and literary principles. It is solely because the data from the ancient Near East coincides so much better with the existing observable structure of Old Testament history, literature, and religion, than with the theoretical reconstructions that we are compelled, as happens in ancient Oriental studies, to question or even to abandon such theories regardless of their popularity. Facts, not votes, determine the truth. And the Bible stands true. And as I always say, the Bible and the spade do go hand in hand. God bless you. Thank you. What binds us together is devotion to worshiping our Heavenly Father, dedication to studying His Word, and determination to proclaim our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. For more teachings from Calvary Albuquerque and Skip Heitzig, visit calvaryabq.org.